Will you pray with me? Let's pray. God, you are our salvation. God, help us to be a people who gives all glory and honor and praise to you. Help us to be a people who in the way that we live and breathe and move, declare your majesty and your goodness. God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to become a man, to live a perfect life, to die on a cross, to be raised in glory. So that we can have a way to be reconciled to you. God, we are a people of hope. Help us to latch on to that hope and to live in that hope and to proclaim that hope. God, as I pray this morning, I realize that there is great need in and amongst our body for those that are here, for those who may be watching on the live stream. There is great need. There's pain. There's heartache. God, we pray this morning that your salvation, your hope would sustain us. We pray that you would heal where there is healing needed. We pray, pray that you would encourage where there is encouragement needed. And God, we thank you for this word. God, I pray that your spirit would use this word this morning to speak to all of us. We pray all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with me this morning in reverence for the reading of God's word. We're in Mark chapter 10. I'll give you a minute to get there. In Mark chapter 10, we're going to start our reading this morning in verse 17. The word of the Lord, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher. I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened. He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
And Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters and mothers, children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You may be seated. Several years ago, um, I went with uh, some folks, Steve and Lori, or some of them, went to India. And uh, if you've never been to India, which I assume most of you have not, although we have several people in here who have been in India... India is a different place. And it takes some adjusting when you go to India. There's different foods, there's different sights, there's different smells, there's different everything. And one of the things that amazed me um, the first evening when we flew into the airport and then we were driving to Jaipur, one of the things that amazed me was I saw these young men and they were running along and I learned that they would be running for many, many miles and they were holding up an idol, a physical idol. I had never seen such things before. When we get to India and as we're walking around and go to various places, kind of the centerpiece of this town that had millions and millions of people and there were various centerpieces and there were idols Literal objects made of stone or made of precious metals. And people were coming to these idols and they were bowing down and they were praying to these idols and they were giving these idols offerings. And at times the idols even slept. There were curtains and they would have to wake up the idols at certain times. We went to uh, not too far away from Jaipur and we went to one of the famous places where some of the bigger, more illustrious idols were. I had never seen anything like this. In fact, if you were wealthy enough, one of the things that you did is that you would buy an idol and you would put this idol in your home. And there was at one point we were going down a street and there was one of the nicest stores. There was one of the nicest workplaces that I saw in India. And it was the idol constructing or making place where they exported these idols all over the world. And I read an article this morning that talked about, and I didn't know this, but that one major industry in China is idol making, and they export these small little golden idols all over the world to Hindu folks who aren't in India, or who aren't in a part of the world where idols are so available. You see, because if you're wealthy enough, not only... Are the idols something you go and visit, but you'll have an idol in your home? And so it was very common if you went into someone's home that they would actually have a physical idol in their home. And the thought process behind this were that there were these idols, there were these images, there were these structures. And that if you paid the right attention to them, if you sacrificed to them, if you bowed down to them, then it would provide you with something. 
would provide you with blessings, with money, with prosperity, with safety, blessings. And one of the things, one of the ways that my mind works and was working at that time is I remember this thought like, you know, we don't do this in America. We don't do this in Christianity. This idol thing. Or do we? You see, one of the things that's interesting about the Bible is that if you were just reading the Bible all the way through, in the Old Testament, we run into physical idols, don't we? There are idols, there are Asher poles, and, and, and the people of God would get in trouble because they would worship other gods. They would worship idols. They would bring these idols into their homes. They would bring these idols into their camps. But when we get to the New Testament, we don't see this anymore, but we still hear this language of idols. And in, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it seems to move from physical idols to idols of the fact, in 2 Timothy, you don't have to turn here, chapter 6. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This is just an example of the New Testament where, where Paul is writing and showing us that these idols are idols of the heart. Today, today we're looking at an account in the Bible that's familiar to most of us church folk. I, I think if I would call up a youth and say, hey, listen, uh, stand up and I want you to tell me what is the story of the rich young ruler about? I think most of our youth, most of our the folks who have been in church for a long time, probably even some of our children could stand up and give me the plot line. Oh, there's this dude and he was rich and he came to Jesus and he wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to get eternal life. And Jesus said, hey, listen, man, if you want eternal life, you got to sell everything you have. And if you sell everything you have, you can follow me and when Jesus told him that, he went away because he didn't want to sell everything he had. Kind of. One of the things I want to posit to you this morning is that there's way more to it than that. Probably some of us, as we heard this passage, even read this morning, was like, yeah, finally, you're going to talk to those rich people. Well, you may be in for a little bit of a surprise this morning. There's a danger of missing the meaning of this text. And the danger of that is that, man, there is something here for all of us. There is something here in this text that is common to the human experience and that we need to gather from this. And, and Mark, as he is writing this, it's interesting the way he writes this, that at several places, he gives us these markers, these things that we should pay attention to. And one of the markers in this text is that this text, this account is full of emotions. 
Did you notice that when I read this? And I want to jump in at maybe a strange place this morning to talk about this text. And I want to jump in at verse 21. Because I think this is huge. Looking at him, Jesus felt what? Love. That as Jesus encountered this man, whatever it was that was going on, that as this man was in front of Jesus talking to him, Jesus felt love. Love, get this, please. The actions that we see Jesus take in this text are motivated by what? Love. This isn't a perturbed Jesus. This isn't a Jesus that is in front of this rich young ruler who's haughty and prideful and Jesus is going to knock his legs out from under him. That's not what's going on in this text. What is going on in this text is that Jesus looks at this man after he has had an interaction with him and he is feeling love towards And one of the things I want you to see is, if you read this text correctly, I think there's a lot to love about this man. I mean, look at verse 17. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus was on the move. And we know that Jesus was moving towards Jerusalem. And so Jesus was physically going somewhere. And this rich young man knew that Jesus was on the move. He heard that Jesus was was going through. And it says what? He ran... To meet him. He ran to meet him. Notice the the fervor that he had. That he runs. He did not want to miss this interaction with Jesus. And not only does he run to meet him. But once he gets to Jesus. What does he do? He kneels down. And this would have been something. This is this rich man. This is this man that had this high place in society. And here he is. He is humbling himself. He's running to Jesus. And he is placing himself on the ground in front of him. And then he uses these words. Good teacher. And some of us when we hear that we're like, oh, there you go. This guy got it wrong. This was a compliment. This was a phrase of reverence. This man was risking a lot by getting out and going to Jesus. And so what I want to say is that he has the right reverence. And doesn't he ask the right question to the right person? The Savior of the universe, Jesus Christ himself. And this rich young man says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And now you know the story, but just pause for a minute here. How would you answer that question? Have you ever thought about it this way? How might you expect Jesus to answer this question? Jesus knows everything. Jesus could have took him to the early version of the Romans road. Romans hadn't been written yet, but Jesus could have walked him through the Romans road. Jesus could have said something like, hey, believe. Trust. Confess. 
Maybe Jesus could have even given us the first version of the sinner's prayer. Isn't that what we would do? And would we be wrong in doing any of that? No. Jesus doesn't do that, does he? In fact, Jesus does something that I think is very puzzling. Jesus says, You know the commandments. And I think many of us, if we're honest with the text and we're reading this text, we say, oh, wait a minute, Jesus, that's a work based salvation. You can't do that. Nobody can earn their way to heaven. Nobody can be good enough to earn their salvation. Jesus, don't you know what the rest of the Bible is going to say? Don't you know why you're going to go to the cross? I think he does. And so we have to wonder, what in the the world's going on here? Why does he tell this man, you know the commandments? And then isn't it puzzling what this young man says? And we like to really beat on him for this. Because he says, yep, those commandments, I know them and I've kept them from my youth up. And we all want to say, no, 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 wait a minute. You just think you've kept this. And I think that's a wrong reading of the text. What this man was saying, and I think what Jesus was acknowledging was that this young man took the commandment seriously. That this was a part of who he was. He had an earnest desire to do what was good. He was really trying to follow the law. And then we hear Jesus looking at him with love. And again, I want you to ask yourself, if you didn't know the story, what might you think happens next? From the loving Savior in contact with this man who had run to him, who had thrown himself at his feet, who had gone to the right person asking the right question and had been sincere in his life and trying to follow the commandments. Don't we think that what Jesus might do, the most loving thing would be to sit him down, put his arm around him. And yet Jesus does something. And I want us to understand that as Jesus says these words, I want you to understand that I think that Jesus was looking at him in the love that only a Savior can have, almost in a pleading way. And this is what he says One thing you lack. Go, sell all that you possess, give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Come, follow me. A better translation, and this is important, a better translation than come, follow me is be following me. And I think this this helps ring true what Jesus is saying. Go. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and be following me. And in the face of this Savior, this man, look at verse 22. Mark goes to great detail to make sure we know what the emotion was here. That Jesus looks upon him with love, 
And this man, in verse 22, was saddened. And he went away grieving. For he had much property. So what is the one thing? What is the one thing that this man lacked? Isn't that the question? You may say, Lewis, didn't you read the text? The one thing that he lacked is he, he wasn't selling his stuff and giving it to the poor. And I want to say, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Pump the brakes here just a little bit. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this account is in all three of the synoptic Gospels. And in all three accounts, you know what comes right before it? Hmm. Interesting. What comes right before it in all three accounts is the account that we studied last week that Gary preached on about the children. And if you remember last week, Gary did a really good job pointing out to us that this account wasn't just about children, but that in verse 15, this was what we are supposed to take away. This is what the disciples were supposed to take away. And it's this. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. That what we saw and what happened in all three Gospels right before this account is that we learn as we're reading the way to enter into the kingdom is through childlike dependence upon Jesus. And when we understand this, we begin to see what Jesus was doing. Jesus was not promoting a works-based salvation. Jesus was echoing what He had just said. And he says it to all of us. If you want to enter the kingdom of God. You enter with a child like dependence. So when he says go and sell. All Jesus is doing here is removing this man's obstacle to being totally dependent upon Jesus. Because for this man. The things that he had was dominating his life. His possessions, his wealth, his money had become an idol in his life. And it's where his dependence lied. And so can you imagine this? I think one of the things that might have happened here is that as Jesus is telling this man this, and as he ends with be following me, that Jesus may look up and see or this rich young ruler may look up and he sees the disciples. He says, you want me to become one of them? They don't have any stuff. See, when Jesus was asking him to do this, it wasn't just of, of giving of excess or a giving of 10% or a giving of, uh, uh, of out of his wealth. This was a complete change in lifestyle. It would have changed everything about him. So as this rich young ruler was hearing this, he knew what it was going to cost him. And I think he looked at this ragtag group of people. And although there was some desire to want to inherit the kingdom of God, it wasn't worth it. His idol provided safety, security, and it led him into sin. 
Did you notice something when I was reading the text? When I was reading the text earlier and we were looking at verse 19, there's something strange. I'll read it again. Verse 19, when Jesus says, you know, the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now, what we know, this is the second table of the Ten Commandments, the the, the bottom five, and this has to do with man's relationship to other men. Did you notice something interesting and strange? Maybe some of you kids who learned the Ten Commandments song, I think we did that recently. I heard, I've heard this sung in this crowd before. There's not a line in there that says, do not defraud, or however the song goes. What was Jesus doing? Was this Jesus being the divine editor and changing the Ten Commandments on the fly? I don't think so. You see, what we see in this text is that Jesus... Instead of saying, do not covet, it says, do not defraud. And I think what Jesus was doing is that Jesus knew this young ruler knew the Ten Commandments. He knew this young man knew the bottom five commandments. And Jesus was highlighting in this man's life, out of love, he was pointing out how far this rich young man had been willing to go to accumulate. And I think, this is a supposition, but I think, supposing here, but I think I'm right, that even in Jesus listing these Ten Commandments, He was pointing right to His heart and He was telling Him, I know that your covetousness has led to you defrauding people. And isn't it fascinating that in reality is that this man, instead of saying, that's me, you're right, I'm the man, I confess that this man, in this moment, chose to violate the first commandment, which was, you will have no other gods before me. And he left to protect his God. Compare this to Jesus' interaction with the wee little man. Kids, who's the wee little man? Zacchaeus. Do you remember when Jesus comes face to face with Zacchaeus? Come down out of that tree. He goes to his house. But the, the most important part I want to pick apart is when Zacchaeus interacts with Jesus, what does he do? He goes and he gives half of everything he owns away. And then it says that all those he had defrauded, he gave back how many times? Four. This was a man who knew, who knew to whom he was standing in front of. And now, now at this point in this account... One of the things that should be echoing in your ears as you're thinking about this rich young man is the interaction they had in the very beginning when Jesus asked this question. And it's a much more piercing question. Why do you call me good? How good am I? And I think in this moment where Jesus says, why do you call me good? That he, Jesus is potentially saying two things. He's potentially saying, 
You're calling me good, but am I good enough? Am I good enough for you to do what it's going to take to abandon your idols and to follow me? And it's also possible that in this moment, and it's this it's the same thing that Jesus is correcting because he says there's no one good but God alone. Leaving open the implication that, yes, you're right, I'm good, I'm God. Am I good enough to you that it's worth it? Do you really want eternal life? Will you be following me? And I suppose maybe at this moment that there's two things rising in us. Maybe there is someone here or there is someone who is watching over the live stream who has never truly placed their trust in Jesus Christ, that there are idols in their life that they're, ha- they're hanging on to, that they would say, no way. And maybe in this very moment, God, the Spirit of God is prompting you to turn loose. And He is saying to you, Jesus is good enough. And I pray that's happening. And I also know that the other thing that is going on right now in the middle of this text for many of us is that we're thinking about, oh, this is uncomfortable. I've got idols in my life as a Christian. And I just want to give you one small example of a way that you can beat back those idols and you can stand on the truth that Jesus is enough. And I just want to give one example that I could have many. I may give you two. But let's stay with the theme of money for a minute. One of the ways, one of the ways that you can protect yourself from the idol of money is something that Casey and I learned early, early on in our relationship, early on in our marriage, um, as we're just struggling, poor uh, seminary students. We had people pour into our lives, different teachers. And so I just want to give you a couple of things that really helped us to be able to 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 try and beat back the idol of money. And one of the things is this. When the Bible talks about giving, it talks about giving from what? Your first fruits. I think there's a strong connection here. That we Christians are to be a people who give. And I think, I do think once you go into the New Testament, it means giving to the local church. And I think it means that one of the reasons that we give from the first fruits is not just so that the church can have a good budget and know how much money is coming in or not coming in, but that we are to give from the first fruits because it demonstrates that our dependence is not on money, but that we know where that money has come from. It has come from God's, it is His, and so as we give from the first fruits, we are offering that up and saying we are dependent upon you. Money is not our God, God, you are. Another practical step is this. You know, the Bible says... The borrower is slave to the lender. We're not having a whole sermon on debt right now, but I am going to simply say this. If you have leveraged yourself up to your eyeballs in debt, you are a slave. And so the temptation for money to become an idol in that moment is huge because you want to be a good neighbor. You want to make do on your debt. You want to be able to pay whoever you owe. And so money becomes too big of a thing in your life because you need it too much. And then lastly, lastly, that Christians, especially when it comes to money, it really, with all that we have, are to be a people who are open-handed. And many times we are, we are very closed when it comes to money, and so we want to know 
uh, specific things and we really guard our idols before we'll kind of let some of it go away. And as Christians, we're to be open-handed. Now, I've used this example to, as money, but I could just as easily talk about idols such as your marriage. Your marriage. God has given you your spouse not to make you happy, not to be your idol. It's, he's the first thing. But when we treat our spouse like an idol, then all of a sudden we're dependent upon them to make us happy instead of God being God in our lives and God filling us. God is the one who meets our needs so that we are able to give, be a giver in our relationship. Children, we can go on down the line. Idols are good things that we turn into God things. Church, what God is calling us to is to see that He is God. He is God. Now, there's another marker. There's another marker in this teaching that shows us there's something more here than just a conversation about money. And look in verse 23. And many argue, and I would agree with them, that verses 23 to 31 are actually the main part about this text. That this man is just an example getting to the main part of the main teaching. And I think verse 23 points us to that. Notice what Mark writes. And he says, Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples. So here comes this rich man. He comes in. He goes. There's just this dramatic scene that unfolds. And then it says that Jesus, looking around at his disciples, making eye contact with them, starts to teach. And I don't think we understand what happens next. I want you to think about this. There's, there's something odd going on in this text. Let's just take it at face value and hear the oddity of this text. So Jesus looks and He begins to teach and He says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And some of you this morning may be saying, yeah, right, that's true. Do you know the average uh, income, middle class, what makes you middle class in Chattanooga is uh, just less than $30,000 a year for a family? In the world, it's $10,000 a year. I think, we, number one, we could say all of us are wealthy. But number two, that's not the point. Jesus wasn't looking at these disciples... And saying, yes, let's bang on those rich people. There's something more going on. Because listen, listen to these odd statements. So he's saying it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed at these words. And you have to ask yourself, why were they amazed? What was so amazing about this? What was so amazing about this? What was going on that was, that was amazing? And, they, and he answered again and he said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished. So they're amazed and they're blown away. And what's their question? God, how are you going to save Jesus? How are you going to save these rich people? That's not what they ask, is it? What do they ask? Who can be saved? The thing that's going on that we've got to wrap our brain around is that according to this day and age, if you had a lot of money, you were blessed. According to Jewish tradition, if you had money, God had blessed you. And so what they were saying is this, if the rich people who are blessed can't get to heaven, we have no shot because we're poor. 
That's why Peter says in a moment, God, we've given up everything. (laughs) And we don't have this thought process today, do we? (laughs) I have this very bad habit of saying this. Uh, if, If I was walking along with Abby and Abby's parents had bought her a brand new Mercedes Benz, I have this bad habit of saying, of saying, oh, Abby must be living right. There's a, a, a famous evangelist that I think is very heretical. His name is Jesse Duplantis, and he has a jet. And on his jet, he has a 24-karat gold plate. And you know what this 24-karat gold plate says? God loves Jesse. When we come in contact with ministries or churches that are doing well financially, what words do we often use? They're blessed. Sometimes we forget that one of the things that happened in the wilderness when the Satan, when Satan was tempting Jesus, that Satan said to Jesus, I'll give it all to you. He could have had the wealthiest Ministry ever. And it would would have been given to him by Satan. Jesus was reorienting these disciples. He was reorienting these disciples and telling them that the stuff is not what makes you blessed. The stuff is not what gets you. The stuff does not mean you're blessed. So that doesn't mean that that's the way it's easier for you to get to heaven. And in fact, in fact... Did you catch the word that Jesus used when he turned to these disciples? Children. You think he's going back to what he had just taught them? How do you receive the kingdom of God? How is it possible for you to enter the kingdom of God? Children. Depend upon me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. See, Jesus is teaching these, these folks just a couple of things that we need to hear. And one of the things he is teaching them is that with God, all things are possible. He's the only one that's good. And that God has made a way to the cross. And that when we see Jesus for who He is and treasure Him for who He is, we will be saved. It's possible with God. He's also teaching us this this whole idea that we know and that is the world and its idols are fleeting. Look at verses 28 through 30. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. That what Jesus is just alluding to, the principle here is this, is that there is kingdom living. And compared to kingdom living and compared to what God has for you in the future, this stuff that you're worshiping doesn't even compare. Your reward will be great. Be following me. I'm good. It's worth it. But make no mistake about it. The road is difficult. 
The road is difficult. Verse 31. It's difficult because everything's reordered from the way you think it should be. The first will be last and the last will be first. And we for weeks have been going through where Jesus has reordered everything. You're called to a life of service, not a life of making much of yourself. And oh yeah, if you want any evidence that it's going to be difficult, look at verse 32. And remember, he said, be following me. They were on their road going where? And in a couple of weeks when we study this passage, we are going to hear Jesus tell his disciples how difficult that road is going to be for him. They spit on him, they curse him, they pull out his beard, they crucify him on a cross. It's a difficult road. But brothers and sisters... Brothers and sisters, he is good and it's worth it. And we have to know that there are obstacles and that there are idols in the way. I know when I was young and really felt the call of God on my life, and this is going to sound silly to some of you, but one of the obstacles in my life is man, if I give my heart and life completely over to Jesus, because as a college person I understood I began to understand what the call was you know what my thought was what held me back if I do this Jesus might make me go to Africa I don't want to go to Africa I like it here I had these goals and aspirations what's so interesting about it is that when I came to the place to where I was willing to just give it all Jesus became such a treasure to me that if he would have asked me to go to Africa, or if he asked me to go to Africa tomorrow, I'll go. One of the saddest things that I have experienced in my life of counseling, and this was 15, 20 years ago, um, two men, and I'll, I'll spare you the details of both of them, but they, they, they came into my office, very similar stories, very similar uh, account just the details were just a little bit different and they came into my office and they sat down and they're like Lewis I'm depressed and as we started talking one of the things you know I start going through my questionnaire well how's your marriage well my marriage is good oh your, your kids your kids are probably crazy no kids are good job no job's fine financially no I'm making more money than I've ever made in my life and it's in that moment that kind of realized I thought what was going on and I asked this simple question to both of them and at this question they both started sobbing in tears. To both of them I asked them the question, have you ever, you ever felt the call to ministry? What had happened is for these men who felt called into the ministry They couldn't go because the idols were in the way. Just a little bit more money. Just a little bit more success. Just a little bit more stability. And here both of them were in their 50s. Just sobbing, saying, I think I've wasted it. But here's the good news. He's good. He's loving. 
What does your home look like? And when I say home, I think I'm meaning your heart. Is your heart more like one of these homes in India with all these idols in it? Or does your heart look more like a disciple's heart? Did the heart beat? And what fills that heart is Jesus Himself. Do you trust Him? Is He good? Is He God? Is He the way to the kingdom? Eternal life. Your riches will fail you. And I just want to mention one just... I probably haven't said this and need to say it. Sometimes when we talk about riches and we talk about riches being an idol, it doesn't mean that only rich people have money as their idol. You understand what I mean? When I was very poor, do you know what was my idol? Money. Why? Because I thought if I had more of it, my life would go more smoothly. That's an idol. Doesn't matter how much money you make. Riches will fail you. People will disappoint you. People make terrible gods. And the things of this world will rust and decay. What idols are in your home? In your heart? And the greatest news of all is that Jesus is looking at you this morning in love And exposing that idol. And it may feel unsafe. It may feel risky. But it's the most sure thing ever. Will you be following him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, I pray that we would hear these words. Be following me. It's not a one-time thing, but it is a decision that happens over and over again in our life. Be following me. God, I pray as well that we would see this exposure of these idols in our life as a thing of love. Not as a thing of condemnation and guilt and shame. But you love us. You love us so much. That you expose the things in our hearts. That might destroy us. You're so good to us. Even when it hurts. We thank you. You are the, your son is the only way to reconciliation with you. And it's in his name that we pray and we rejoice. Amen.